What a delight it was this morning to be led in worship by our, our youngest of children, our littlest of voices here at Cornerstone. Jesus says to us, let the little children come to me. He loves it when the children of his people are in his presence singing praises to his name. What a, what a joy and what a blessing that is. But oh, uh, what a sadness it is to this day, isn't it? Um, how many of us come into this uh, space this morning with heavy hearts, having come through the sorrow of Monday's tragic events at the Covenant School in Nashville, a place that is intended to be a safe place, a sanctuary, a place where the worship of God's people takes place, a place where children are cared for, a place where they are to be loved and tended, turned into a, a place of attack, a place of violence, a place of terrible tragedy. It's heavy knowing, isn't it, that today as we hear these lovely voices of children sing, that there are a few less voices here on earth of children singing. But isn't it hopeful in knowing that those voices are arrayed around the throne of grace today? That as we gather the church not yet triumphant, the church still incomplete, the mission of Christ still not in its fullness, as we gather today in the presence of the Lord, there is a church triumphant that gathers which we unite our hearts with and our voices with today, the angels and the, the archangels and the voices of those in Christ who have gone before us. And we gathered on Wednesday evening this, this last week to finish our study in the Pilgrim's Progress, which we've been making our way through week by, by week during this Lenten season by the Lord's Ordering, we were considering that final stage in Christian and hopeful's journey as they make their way to the celestial city. That they have to cross the river of, of death. But we're told in, in that Pilgrim's Progress moment that Christian and hopeful are, are instructed by the shining ones, the angels who are there at the outskirts of the celestial city to assist them across the river of death. They're told in that moment that the river is, is only as deep as their doubts and is as shallow as when their faith is strong. That, that their faith in the Lord makes that moment of death be more or less overwhelming. And hopeful as he is finding his way across that river, finds the footing easy as he latches hold of the promises of God. But Christian finds that river overwhelming. And he's afraid that the ways will overcome him until he remembers that promise from Isaiah 43. That the waves will not overcome you. That when you pass through the waters... I will be with you. And as Christian lays hold of that promise, crossing the river of death, he finds that his, that his soul is strong, that his backbone has ballast, 
that he makes it in almost no time to the other end of, of the river, to the shores of the celestial city, and therein is greeted, yes, by the, the Lord himself. You know, we never know how quickly we will make it to the celestial city, do we? We, we never know the days as they are numbered for each and every one of us. We acknowledge that in the presence of the Lord in a very real way today, don't we? We don't presume upon tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of God's grace. Today, again, we lay a hold of the Lord's promises. And as we come to the word from Ephesians at chapter 2, really the very section that we used in the confession of sin again today, as we come to this text, we have... Well, the riches of God's mercy and the greatness of His love that He has made us alive in Christ Jesus. And we have hope to believe that when we close our eyes, however we close them here upon this earth, that we open them instantly to behold the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. That from the moment our breath ends here, our lungs are filled with the air of heaven. And we are there in the presence of the Lord. And today, six souls added to the throne of grace that we join our voices with this day and will one day be with by God's grace. Before we even read God's word today, let's pray towards this end that we might hear this truth. Father in heaven, we come with heavy hearts. We come with hearts grief-stricken over this fallen and broken world over the tragedy of the loss of life this week from our own community. Lord, we come needing to hear from you. We come with, with hearts that, that have found it difficult this week to know how to trust, to know how to take one step forward in faith. We come with, we come with a need to hear from you. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you help us to understand the insanity of evil? Would you help us to, to turn actually from sin and evil and, and in justice fight against it? For the kingdom of Christ and the shalom and the peace that comes with that prince, even the prince of Christ himself, to be more present in this life. And more present in our lives. And would we be able, even in the darkness, to trace in the scriptures today your hand. And find that though we weep with, with inconsolable grief today. We weep with hope. Knowing that these tears are not the last word. That these tears you will, so to speak, take the cloth in heaven and will dampen that cloth with these tears. And they will be one day no more. Lord, would you cause us to believe that this day? Would you help us, even from this, your word from Ephesians chapter 2, would you help us to hear it and to know it and to believe it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at God's word from Ephesians chapter 
to these, this lovely gospel-rich passage that teaches us about the salvation of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you, that's us here in this room, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us. In Christ Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You know, these powerful few verses really teach us a spiritual biography, a spiritual biography of every true Christian's life. There's some wonderful biographies out there. I read one recently of a of a minister in uh, in Wales who has been a, a, an amazing servant of the Lord for over forty years in the work of ministry, and and he penned very recently his autobiography. And I've listened to his preaching for years and have been helped by it. And as I read his autobiography, there were themes that are right here in. Ephesians chapter 2 that are laced in his own life and heart. A man who was dead in his trespasses and sins. But the Lord made alive. God has made alive. He's brought him to life. And he has created him to be a trophy of his, of his grace. That's his story. Now, it was a lot of pages. It was a lot of words. There was a lot of twists and turns. But that was the story. That was the spiritual biography of that servant of the Lord. But no matter if you're a preacher or a, a, a plumber or a candlestick maker, no matter what it is that you are, if you're a Christian in the Lord Jesus Christ, your biography is here in Ephesians chapter 2. That we are a people who are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But God has made us alive but God has made us alive, and we have a, we have a hope that he's going, he's going to reveal in us and through us his, the immeasurable riches of His grace. That's what He wants to show for all eternity, the immeasurable riches of His, of his grace. Paul is giving to us a spiritual biography here, and I, I, want, us to, I want us to pace in this biography. I want us to learn a little bit about our spiritual past, if you're a believer in here today. And then a bit about your spiritual present, what it is that the Lord has done in your life through the power of the gospel. 
And then a little bit about your spiritual future. That's right, the part that in your mind hasn't been written yet, but has already been inscribed in the pages of the Word, spiritually speaking, and has already been inscribed by the providence of the Lord. He knows the, the end even from the beginning. He has marked all of our days. He tells us our spiritual future. And I think as we look at these three turns in our spiritual biography today, it will give to us really the true hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. Our spiritual past, our spiritual present, our spiritual future. Notice how he describes our spiritual past. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now this is, this is the reality for each and every one of us, no matter who it is that you understand yourself to be in Past. Here is the spiritual reality that the Scripture gives to us about who it is that we really are before Christ. We are spiritually dead in our trespasses and our sins. Notice this word trespass. It, it means to go where it is that we ought not to go. To cross over the boundary marker that... The Lord is put in place regarding His laws, regarding His commands. Do you know the very first sin that was ever cre created, we might say, or done, performed, was a sin that was a trespass. What, what did God say about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you should not eat of it? That was the boundary marker. That was the, the line. What did Eve and then Adam do? They trespassed. They went over that marker and committed a sin. It was that trespass, that foundational act of sin that has caused the wreck and the havoc that each of us experience in our own personal lives. And, well, the chaos and disorder that is, well, the mark, isn't it, of this broken and fallen world. He says we're dead in our trespasses and our, our sins. Literally those things, hamartia in the Greek, those things which... Don't measure up to the standard that God has called each and every one of us to. You see, there are sins, right, that we break commands. Sins we call sins of commission. Sins where we go directly against the law of God. But then there are sins of, of omission. There's just the things that we do that don't measure up to what it is that the Lord has called us to. Let's, for instance, put this one out there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How are you doing there? Love your neighbor even as you love yourself. Have you done that perfectly this week? No, we haven't measured up to that standard. It's a com commandment that, that, we, that, we haven't, that we haven't been able to reach the standard of. He's saying here, you're, you're dead in these trespasses and sins. You don't have, as it were, the spiritual life to be able to overcome these trespasses and sins. You're, you're so ensnared, you're so entangled in them that the mark of your spiritual life is one that's not just sick, that's not just broken and needs to be fixed, not just needs some rehab, not just needs some, some band-aids or some surgeries. You're spiritually DOA. You are dead on arrival. There's nothing that you can do. And notice what he says is the nature of this deadness. He says, this deadness is not like 
It's not like you're up to nothing. It's not a physical deadness. Notice it's a in which you once walked. You walked in it. You walked in the deadness of sins and, and trespasses. It's, 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 not a, it's not as if you're physically dead. It's not as if you're emotionally dead or, or psychologically dead. It's that you're spiritually dead. You're walking. You're busy in the trespasses. You're busy in the, the sins. You, you've walked in these. This is who it is that you were. And, and notice you're something of a disciple. No, not the kind of disciple that we think of when we're in church. We think of being a Christian disciple, one who's following Christ. But notice, you followed the path of the world, he says. You followed under the power of the prince of the air. You are a disciple in in sin. You, You walked in the trespasses and sin. This is a darkness of disciple. You gave in to the passions of your your flesh. It's an easy. It's an easy remembrance here, isn't it? You, you walked in the path of the world. You walked by the prince of the power of the air, that is the evil one. You walked by the passions of the flesh. He says, this is the mark of being dead in your trespasses and sins. You're very alive. You're very alive to sin. You're very alive in sin. But you're dead to the realities of salvation. You're dead spiritually speaking. It's remarkable here that as he gives us this picture, is it, he gives us something of what, well, what we would see as the, the degradation and corruption that that first sin, that trespass brought into our lives and has spread abroad in all of, of the earth, which we have seen in Technicolor this week. The, the reality that sin is not just a, a path that one takes, but it's a power that one, as you submit to it, takes more and more control over you. Do you, do you see, you followed the course of the, the world. That is, you lived in the world like there really wasn't a God. You just lived the way anybody in the world would live. You lived without real reference to the Lord. And you say, well, I'm guilty of that. But then that path of the world is actually under the authority of the prince of the air. That's the evil one at work. That's the evil. You're, you're under the, the inhabitants of the power of the, of the prince of the air, even, even the evil one who is here. And then as you walk in the path of the evil one, according to the course of the world, you give in to the passions of your flesh. The passions of your flesh. Now, he's not saying here that the desires that we have within us are evil. Desires, say, for food. Desires for, for sleep. Some of us have a great desire for sleep. Uh, you have desires for the good things that the Lord has made in, in the world. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of desires that are inordinate, that are, that, that, that are extreme and ultimately bent towards wickedness and, and evil. The word here that Paul uses, epithemia in the Greek, is, a, is not just a desire. It's a desire that has taken on a life of its own. So, for instance, it's not a desire for food. It's, a, it's gluttony. It's not a desire for sleep, it's sloth. It's not a desire for sex, it's, it's lust. Right? It's these desires which God has given to the human person, which are good and created by Him, that have now been in sin, twisted, bent, become inordinate, they've become extreme. This is why sin, ultimately, if given into, 
leads us to insanity, to chaos, to disorder. The, the likes of which we have seen so clearly, haven't we? So, so, so clearly this week, we find ourselves going, how does this happen? How does what happened on Monday take place in the life of, of someone? Sin in the world gone crazy. Sin in a heart gone crazy. The realization for more and more is what sin and, well, ultimately leading right to, to death. A life of sin given to the passions of the flesh under the rulership of the prince of the power of the air according to the course of the world increasingly given over to chaos and disorder. He says the reason that we do these things, whether in the extreme or in what appears to be very respectable in ordinary ways, no matter where we are on the continuum of the reality of those sins, he says here we are by nature, all of us, children of wrath. That's not a compliment. We are by nature children of wrath. In other words, why do we do these things? Because it is who we are. Is it who we have become? We have become a people who have, in the very core of our being, become corrupt. Now, this is, of course, the old, really the old classic uh, doctrine of total depravity. On a week like to this week, it's easier to believe in that doctrine. There are some times where it's harder to believe in a week like. This week it's easier to believe because we see a manifestation of that darkness and that depravity so clear. But it's, it's important that we, we understand that the doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean the full extent of wickedness is true in every person. It doesn't mean that we're comprehensively wicked, meaning that there is nothing in us redeemable at all. Total depravity says that every part of our being has been touched or tainted with the reality of sin. Our mind, our emotions, our bodies, every aspect of us is broken and fallen and inclined in some way towards sin. It's total in its, in its that it touches every part of us. It's not comprehensive in that it's as worse as it could possibly be. And that is why there's different degrees of corruption we see in the lives and the hearts of persons. And yet, every person, no matter if you have in your mind the smallest degree, or you have in the mind the person who is the worst of the degrees, according to the Apostle Paul here, we are all by nature children of wrath. Meaning, really, as Paul is saying here, he's really teaching us, you know what he's teaching us? He's teaching us the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin, you may oh, that's that Garden of Eden thing again, isn't it? Yes, it is. That's that, that eating of the forbidden fruit again. That was the original sin. Well, yes, but there's more than that that's going on, you see. In the doctrine of original sin, in that moment when, when Adam ate that forbidden fruit, he, as the representative of all of mankind, we fell in Adam according to Romans chapter 5. That the, that the sin that Adam 
committed was a sin that ripples down in every generation, in every person who is naturally generated throughout all of human history. Every person is affected by the sin and the reality of what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. The the guilt of Adam's sin is on us. The reality and the power of that sin has been traced down through the legacy of history. And the, the, the penalty of that sin is on all of us so much so that David would say to us in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. Now you've heard me say this before, it's worth repeating now, but have you noticed that Sin is not something you have to teach anyone. Have you noticed how natural it is? Have you noticed how inclined we are? We have to teach people other things, don't we? We have to to teach people other things. We don't have to teach people sin, the inclination of sin. Why? Because we are by nature children of wrath, you see. And that wrath points, of course, to to the reality of judgment, doesn't it? To the reality that sin, the wages of sin is death, and every offense of sin is against first and foremost an almighty and everlasting God. And because of that reality, because of those circumstances, that we are deserving of God's judgment. We are deserving of God's wrath. This is our spiritual past, you see. Now, what is... Why is Paul going over this? Why is he teaching us this? Well, he wants to remind you of where it is that you've come from. He also wants to remind you and me that though you may not be as bad as you possibly could be, you are as bad off as you possibly could be. That your circumstances are as dire as you can imagine. You are, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. He wants you to remember that today. He wants you to go back in your spiritual biography and remember the desperateness of your condition, the direness of your condition. He also wants to say to those of you who may not know Christ today, he wants you to know that this is your spiritual present, you see. Have you, have you found yourself constantly self-centered? Have you, have you found yourself... Constantly thinking about what's in it for you, even when you're thinking about others? Have you found yourself constantly dealing with the realities of weaknesses, not becoming the person that you would want yourself to be? You don't even measure up to your own standards. Have you found that's to be the case? He wants you to know this is the reason why. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. There is no energy or effort that you could muster from within yourself to make yourself become the person that you ought to be. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. He says that's your spiritual biography. What does it do when we pause in this? What what does this note do? Well, it brings humility, doesn't it? Because I I would dare say, right, for many of us in this room, we can easily slip into a pattern of thinking. We really, you know, we're we're pretty good people. At least I'm not like so and so. Now, why would, Paul be, why would Paul be addressing this here? Because he want, Jews dealt with this very issue. Paul is a Jew. They, they dealt with believing, you know, because we're God's covenant people, we've kind of got a leg up. Because God has set his love on us, we're really a cut above all of the, the rest. Notice he says in here, you were dead in your trespasses. He's speaking to the Gentiles who are there in Ephesus, but later doesn't he say, 
that we are children of wrath by nature like the rest of mankind. He throws everybody in there. No one gets a cut. No one here is this category not true of. He wants to bring us to a place of desperation, you see. He wants to bring us to a place of humility. He wants us to look honestly at our spiritual reality and past because, you see, when you realize how desperate you are, it's only then that the grace of God can become so beautiful and wonderful to you. And that's where, that's where Paul moves, doesn't he? He moves from our spiritual past to our spiritual present. Notice what he says there in verse 4. But God, aren't those just the sweetest words in all of Scripture? But God, here is your hope. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Do you know today the Lord is toward you, rich in mercy and great in his love. Even while you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Oh, it's so, it's so good that he said that, isn't it? See, he's saying that when you were your worst, he loved you. He didn't say, hey, my mercy is available to you. My love is available to you. Clean up a bit and we'll see if you get some. That's not what he says, is it? He was rich in mercy and great in his love even while you were dead in your trespasses and, and sins. And what did his... What did his great mercy, what did his great love do for us? Well, notice what he says, it made us alive. You see, we, need, we, don't, need, we don't need a little self-help. We don't need a pill. We, we, don't, we don't need another practice. We don't need a little of advice. We need to be brought back from the grave, spiritually speaking. You see, that's what Paul is saying here. We need a God who resurrects people, who brings people back from the grave. But God made you alive, he says, together in Christ Jesus. He's in the work of what the theologians would call regeneration, of bringing us back, regenerating, generating again people who were once alive, who are now dead in their trespasses and sins. He brings them back to life. That's the work that the Lord is in. That's what salvation is, you see. Salvation is the Lord coming and resuscitating a spiritual life that was dead. And, and notice how he, how he does this. He does this, he tells us, with Christ. Do you remember the theme of Ephesians? It's a union with Christ. It's union with Christ. You remember how we said earlier that everything that Adam did had a consequence on us? That when, that when he sinned, when he committed the original sin, that the guilt of that sin, the penalty of that sin, the reality of that sin follows everyone who comes, comes from Adam by ordinary generation. All, all of that happens. Now, some of you in here, because you're, especially because you're Americans, you said to yourself, well, that's, that's not fair. That, that's, not, that's not fair that someone, what someone else would do affects 
affects me. That's, that's not fair. Well, let me just tell you, if you don't like that, then you won't like the gospel. You won't like the gospel. Why do I say that? Because, yes, you got into the predicament by someone else's sin, but you get out of the predicament by someone else's faithfulness. We don't like the idea that the guilt of someone's sin would be charged to us, but we seem more comfortable usually with the righteousness of someone being charged to us. You see how that works? No, the Scripture is consistent all the way through. It wants you to know that you sin because you're a sinner, right? You are by nature children of wrath. But Jesus has come, and you have been made alive with Christ you, only through Him. Notice what... What Paul does here, he says, Jesus was raised from the dead. He was seated at the right hand of the throne in heaven. And you're raised with him. And you're seated with him. Now, I want you just to imagine for a second. This is what he's saying. He's saying right now, if you are in Christ Jesus, you've already been raised from the dead. You are right now in the heavenly places, positionally seated with the Lord Jesus Christ as he's at the right hand of the Father. He sits in the authority and power. You have everything has been made available to you in Christ Jesus. He says, I want you to know that. Francis Schaeffer years ago said, the Christian should imagine him or herself having already died, been raised, ascended, and come back on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's happened to you. You're not actually waiting to be resurrected. You are a part of the resurrection that's already happened in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not waiting to be ascended to the heavenly place. You are there in Christ Jesus. You're not, you're not waiting for these things to happen. No, they're, they're yours in Christ Jesus. That's what he wants you to know. And do you notice here, all of this, when he's talking about salvation, he's not talking about something you're doing. Have you noticed that? All of a sudden when he says, he made you alive. He seated you with Christ Jesus. He raised you with Christ Jesus. Notice he's talking about Jesus. He's talking as if your salvation had nothing to do with you except your need for it. By grace, verse 5, he says, you have been saved. Do you see, that's the very definition of, of grace. That's the very definition of grace. Grace can't be earned. Grace can be achieved. It can't be performed for. The only people who qualify for grace are the people who know that they need it. And that apart from it, they have no hope save in God's sovereign mercy that has been made available to them in Christ Jesus. That's, those are the people who are, who are qualified for the reality of grace. They know that they don't deserve it. And they are open-hearted and open-handed to receive from the Lord that which he would give to them in Jesus Christ. That's what grace is. And do you know the people who really know that they need that grace? Or they're the people who know this history. Who have this spiritual past. You see, when we come to terms with the bad news about who we are, we can begin to come to terms with the good news about who Jesus is. But don't try to get those reversed. It never works. You've got to come to terms first with that. He has made us alive together with Christ. He has raised us with Christ. He has seated us in the heavenly places. This is our spiritual present. Do you know what that does? If our spiritual past gives to us the appropriate humility, our spiritual present gives us the appropriate thankfulness 
the appropriate confidence, the appropriate peace. That right now, Christ has done it all. And we're in Him. Friends, if, if we didn't believe that today, then all of the events of, of, of this week would, would be for us just utter despair. Why would we be gathering here today? Why, why would we have hope to gather here today if, if this spiritual present that Paul is giving us here in Ephesians 2 is not true? That already the grave is empty. Already Christ is ruling and reigning on high. That Christ is right now making a footstool for his feet by way of his enemies. That he will triumph over good and evil. That hell will not prevail against the kingdom of Christ. Why would we gather if we didn't believe that? This is not a wish. This is not a, this is not a, a fleeting hope. This is a reality. That's at work right now in the world, which is why Christians, even in the midst of such devastating grief and loss, can actually have bold confidence. And we do as we gather here today because of that spiritual present. And because we know that though we may see through a mirror dimly today, we will one day see all of these rich truths face to face as we behold Christ. You know, this week, having talked to so many people about this, the struggles and the tragedy, there are times where questions that were asked, you know, we can't answer. Why did the Lord allow this particularly to happen? Why did the Lord not stop this from taking place? There are answers that we can give, but no answers that would fully satisfy us in this moment. No answers in the particular that would give us all of the, the nuances of what we would like to be able to hear and the particulars of what we would like to be able to, to hear in that moment. It feels somewhat like the disciples when Jesus says in John, you know, unless you eat my flesh and, and drink my blood, you have no share with me. And we're told that many of the people left him at that moment. And the disciples, it appears, contemplated it. It was a hard saying, we're told. They're trying to understand what is he he's saying here. This is a hard saying. And he says, will you leave me too? And some of us, if we're, if we're honest, this week we've had that question. And then Peter, though, responds, and what does Peter say? Peter says, where else would we go? Where would we go? Only you have the words of life. Where would we go? Where would we go? Only you have the words of life. Do you see, that? that's what Paul is saying here. And then as you begin to think through it, you begin to think through it, and you begin to say, oh, right, it was through the greatest tragedy in all of human history that he's actually redeeming the world, isn't it? It was through an injustice, a violent act, that his own beloved son's life was taken in order that he would redeem for himself a people as his treasured possession. If he is doing that in the world, 
Can we trust Him to do something great with what we've experienced this week? If He is doing that, can we, can we trust Him? We don't know all of what it means, but can we trust Him? Only He has the words of life, you see. Where else would we go? Do you see, that's the promise of this text, you see. The spiritual past brings us to humility. The spiritual present brings us to peace. But the spiritual future brings us to hope. Notice where he lands here in verse 7. Why does he tell us the spiritual biography? Why does he go through it? Because he wants us to know what we're going to see in the future. He wants us to know what we're going to see in the future. Here's why he does all that he does. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show. He might show. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you see what he's going to do? This is, this is the most, again, the only way you can say this is by faith. The only way that you can say this is by faith. That when we come, we come into the coming age, the whole coming age is going to be about him showing off his immeasurable riches of his grace. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see all of the tragedies done to his people. All of the providences throughout life and their injustices. All of the wreck and chaos and disorder. And we're going to see all of those loose ends tied up with such beauty and glory, we're going to say to ourselves, those are the immeasurable riches of His grace. That's what we're going to say. That's what we're going to say. He has done all things right. That's what we're going to say. We can't say that here. We don't see that yet, do we? In the coming age, He says. What is that? That's an act of faith. That's an act of faith. In the coming age, here's what we're going to be able to say. He took this tragic incident and he wove such a marvelous tapestry of the glory of his grace and his kindness towards all those who are in Christ Jesus that we will have our jaws hitting the ground at the immensity of the redemption and the salvation and the glory that he won for himself through what man thought he could do to destroy the church the Lord will build, to build the church for his glory. What she meant it for evil, he will mean it for good. He will mean it for good. He will show forth the immeasurable riches of his grace towards us who are in Christ Jesus. He will do it. We gather today in that hope, you see. Recognizing the spiritual past, which for some is their spiritual present. Recognizing that our spiritual present are those who have been made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking to our spiritual future where all of the immeasurable riches of His grace will be shown forth in glory. Friends, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. In the meantime... We weep. And we long. And we cry. And we say, how long, O Lord? How long? In the meantime, we, we do just that. And we do that with hope. 
We do that with hope. We do that, we do that as Christians. As those who place bodies in graves, knowing that they're waiting for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's what we gather in today. This is our spiritual story, you understand. And we have every reason on this holy week to move through the cross unto the empty tomb. Father in heaven, would you take the truths and the riches of what it is we've explored together today in your presence with tender and broken hearts? Would you help us today to have a voice of confidence and hope in the midst of streaming tears? Because we know that the spiritual past has been overcome in Christ. The spiritual present of being made alive in Christ is ours. And the spiritual future of the immeasurable riches of His grace is forthcoming for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, today would you make it so. Ravish our hearts with these truths, we pray. And let us walk with your boldness into a world so clearly needing to hear these truths. Would you open up a path of mission for us in the midst of this? Do not give us over to a spirit of fear, but of confidence and of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, hear this prayer and answer it. In Jesus' name, amen.